Hey guys, welcome to a special edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. As you know by now, the Inside Scoop is a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they lived in another city around the world. And that's exactly what we're going to jump into today. I am honored to be interviewing Coach Danny Van Mol from the Netherlands. Danny just gave me uh, an overview, some history 101. Are you as smart as a fifth grader um, uh, uh, introduction to the Netherlands? Helping us understanding the culture a little bit. And we're going to share that fun video in the show notes. But today we're going to take a deeper dive into understanding what the soccer pathways would be like if our child lived in the Netherlands. And I'll say one more thing about this. Because Danny has lived in the States, he's coached in the States for so long, he's a great person to give us perspective on juxtaposing some of the things he's, he's seen in the States against what he has experienced in the Netherlands. Danny, Welcome to the show. Introduce yourself and tell us where you're coming from. Hey, Neil. Uh, Denny here. So I uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, we finally had our first snow here yesterday uh, for the year. What is um, weird to think about because normally we got way more than this. Um, been in this area for oh, 22 years now. Um Coach for several clubs in the area, currently coaching for a smaller club just outside of Madison called uh, Oregon Soccer Club. Joined them about a year ago. Um, out of need to, who doesn't, make a little bit of money to help offset uh, my son's expenses uh, with him traveling through the whole country for his hobby of soccer. Um and um, yeah, over over all those years, uh, especially in my early years, um, went through all my licensing through the USSF. So uh, I'm, as you want to call it, a former USSF A license coach. Uh, my coach, uh, my license has expired, unfortunately. But at the time I did my B, that was for life. So um, I'm I'm still good there. Um, although a lot of those licensing has been changed over the years. So we'll uh, we'll see kind of what the next couple of years are going to bring. If I, I'm going to redo all the licensing or just leave it by what it is. Yeah, at this stage of the game, I totally get it. And a lot of times people just see your experience, and that's that's oftentimes enough. So let's just jump right into it. The way I like to tee this show up is normally I give a quick overview of how soccer works in the States so that the person – can picture how we want to frame the show. But because you live in the States and you're obviously extremely familiar with the States, and like you said, you've gone all the way up to a license, I'm not going to do that. And also, um, we've done a lot of these shows. So I'll, I'll, I'll press you on certain details as it relates to the States when the time is necessary. So we're going to skip that portion and go straight to this question. And this is a big one. We're going to tee it up. My eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, they move to the Netherlands. And I call you and say, I want to get them into soccer. 
what are the possible ways that they can get into soccer at those youngest age, younger ages? Um, again, like you mentioned before, I've been out of the Netherlands for a while, but when I was there, um, I was super easy. Um, you went to a local club in your area that you lived, and you basically say, I have a nine-year-old and he wants to play soccer. What do I need to do? And you get a training time um, to come out and they will take a look at you. And if you enjoy it, they will place you on a team that they think suits best for your son's know-how at, at that moment. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the big difference. People can do that there so easy because the average cost is just uncomparable to what it is here. Like, if I would move to the Netherlands with my nine-year-old son right now, I'd pay less than 150 euros a year to have my son train twice a week, play a game on Saturday, do a tournament. In, in, in most cases, the club has uniforms that are sponsored, so there is no fee for uniforms. Um, and, and like every club has their own complex. So with their own locker rooms and their, their own like clubhouse. So a lot of money is generated through like the clubhouse that helps offset and reduce a lot of cost. Okay, so let's unpack that. So let me talk about the states for a second because I'm actually going to share this share this with a listener who is actually coming from the Netherlands and had questions with the U.S. about U.S. soccer. So let me share let me share let me answer that same question from the U.S. perspective, and then we're going to go back to dig into your your answer. If you had a nine year old, you said they were going to come to the states and they wanted to get them, you wanted to get them in the soccer. And I'm going to try to be thorough, but I'm going to try to be quick. I'm going to tell you the possible ways. They're franchises. They're franchises that offer these programs. So it's like McDonald's offers fast food. They're franchises that offer soccer experiences from little indoor, in, in, internal leagues, like intramural leagues, clinics, whatever. They're futsal organizations. I don't, I don't want to call them franchises because they're normally not franchised. But there's some business that has decided we're going to offer futsal. So maybe a business owner has converted a gym into futsal courts or indoor courts. So futsal and indoor. So I can go down to this place and sign my kid up and they're going to get a certain amount of games. Indoor or futsal. Then the municipality offers soccer. Mom and dad are going to coach. You're going to pay the equivalent of, of uh, about $100. You're going to get eight games for eight weeks, one game per week, one practice per week. Again, think of the kid wearing shin guards outside of their socks. Think of the kid going to the bathroom in the middle of the game without telling the parent, like just straight up recreational. So that's sort of, and it's always going to be that one kid that's amazing that the parent works with them and scores a lot of goals and everybody's like, oh, wow, he's so good. That's 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 recreational, but that's organized by the municipality. 
then you have franchises that offer recreational experiences as well. So not just indoor, but like outdoor recreational. So here we have like I-9 as an example. There's these other ones as well. Soccer shots is outdoors. So then you have our clubs who offer recreational soccer. So these are these are organizations, they're normally nonprofits that are in the business of soccer. And then one of the pathways that they offer is recreational. And that gets you, they go from recreation all the way to academy. You're too young to play for our schools at that age. It's possible though, we have faith-based organizations who also form faith-based, not faith-based leagues, but leagues around in other churches, mosques, or whatever, they'll play each other. And that's not completely uncommon. So the way you the way you hear about it, if you're not a member of one of those organizations, is someone when they join a club or whatever, they say, Oh, I used to play in my church league or something. And they're basically saying it's like rec, but it's a little bit more than rec, but it's a faith faith-based. I don't know if I'm missing any, but those are the main ones. So and then if you're nine, you're old enough to play competitive soccer. And so, but the only way you're going to play competitive soccer is to join one of those clubs and then leave the rec program. And then they have these other ones. So now that I said that, I really want to be comprehensive to the best of your memory. You have the club and I'm assuming you're defining this club as a, they're tied to a professional team that also supports the local, uh, the, the grassroots. No. So the professional teams are basically on their own. And then they have so many other clubs around them. So, for example, if I would take the Madison area where I live, right, and I just would move here, and let's say this this would be a, a Dutch city, um, so in Madison, we have the Madison 56ers, we have um, Rush, Wisconsin, we have um, FC Wave Madison, we have the Region Soccer Club, we have the Magic Soccer Club, we have Verona. So all those clubs are individual clubs. Nothing different than here. And in the Netherlands, that's the same. Um the difference is that I can join a club at the age of nine and leave that same club at the point that I can't walk anymore. The U teams through U18 mainly play on Saturday. The adult teams starting age 18 basically play on Sunday. If I would want to change from clubs and let's say... I have developed myself a little bit and this I was playing for the region soccer club, but the highest level that they go is, is basically, let's say, and I'm just for the example, they're like a tier three club, but I'm outgrown that I'm ready for like a tier two or a tier one. I would basically go to my new club. I would ask for a application to join their club. I would fill in my parts. As a family member, I would go to my old club, have them 
sign on the bottom apart that tells them like that I'm not coming back. And then I hand in my application at the new club. Once that is all done, basically I would go to the club, I would train with a couple of teams and they would place me where they think is best suited as a youth player. To go to all the ranks that you were talking about, um, what happens here in the US, that is not so much there in, in the Netherlands, at least not when I grew up. Um, there are now more and more academy programs, as they call, but they're not necessarily attached to any club. Um, so I am still going, I'm just still starting in, in most cases at an amateur club. I think what is a real difference between here in the US and the Netherlands is that all the pro clubs in the Netherlands, um, what is like 18 in the in the top division in the Eredivisie and 18 in the second division, they have scouts. They have people on staff that they hire that all are assigned to certain territory and they go watch youth games from like age 10 through age 12. And that's all they do. Based on that, they will invite a couple of kids here and there to train with their academy teams that in a lot of cases start around the age of 11 or 12. And if, if, if they do well, they might get at the end of their full year an offer to join those pro clubs. If you look that and you compare that to the United States, here it's all about your son plays at a certain level or your daughter plays at a certain level and does really well. And through word of mouth, that information trickles a certain pathway. And if you're lucky, it ends up with a coach at a youth academy club for the pros. And they start looking online to see if there is some video and they like what they see. So they might end up watching a game. That just doesn't happen as much in the Netherlands as, as it happens here. There's a way more official process in the Netherlands where scouts are just watching games because everything is so much more compact, right? Like the Netherlands is the size of like a state of Connecticut. So all the pro clubs have better ways to kind of look around and recruit in their areas. Um, if, if you're not getting recruited and you want to move up, you just need to do your homework and say, okay, right now I'm a U14 player. I play for Regent. We're playing in a county league, but I want to be a travel player. So instead of at Regent, I'm going to sign up for the Madison 56ers and hopefully I will make the first or second team because they both play at a higher level than the top team at Regent. But let's, okay. And that's helpful. So let's unpack some details though. I'm not, are you saying, so when you say the local club, is that local club, how is that local club 
characterize? Is it a nonprofit? Yeah, there. Uh, no, not so much because they do make income through their clubhouse. Um, and and so that let money. Just, let me inter let me interrupt there to say because this is what I can't picture. Are you when you say they make income through, through their clubhouse? Are you saying they have a men's team that may not be, I mean, maybe lower on the pyramid, but generates revenue? Yeah. So basically, I'm trying to I'm trying to understand the 150 euros a year, and I know you're I know we're mixing up the time dynamic. Things could change a little bit, but still, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to reconcile the 150 euros a year that a training two days a week. Is that? Do you think that's with a parent, or is that with a paid coach or that, volunteer? That, that's all with paid coaches that are hired by the club that go through their licensing. Okay, so hundred. So now, so you, I'm trying to reconcile. You got a paid coach. The income, the 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 revenue for the um from the parents is about hundred and fifty dollars a year, fifty euros a year, two days a week with the paid coach plus a game. So I'm trying to understand where is the revenue coming to even pay the coach in the fields? How do how do they operate? So a lot of it is sponsorships, um, the income from the clubhouse. So like I said, every club has their own facility with like a clubhouse, with like some locker rooms. The clubhouse basically has a general area inside where they sell coffee, beer, soda, chips, sandwiches. Um, and that's a way for them to generate money and to keep it as a club on flow. But on top of that, like every team basically has a sponsor. Like in, in, in Europe, especially like it's way more seen as like, if I would have a business in the Netherlands, the cheapest way for me to advertise in my local area would be to go to my local club and say, hey, I'm willing to give 1,500 euro to have your U16 boys team in new uniforms. But it needs to have my sponsor name on the front. So the uniforms are basically paid for by that sponsor. Um, and that goes through the whole club from like the U6 all the way to the veterans. Their uniforms are often taken care of by individual sponsors, businesses, because it's it's a write-off. It's a way of advertising. Yeah, and, and this is an aside, and we're going to go back to this. That's actually one of my little pet, my quiet pet peeves, because our uniforms for our my, one of my son's clubs is sponsored. And we don't see, but our uniforms are expensive. I'm like, what are they doing? But that's a, I'm sure someone can, someone can comment on that because they're going to explain to me how expensive everything is. But the bottom line is, I'm like, it should at least be cheaper, right? You're getting these names, you're getting these names on the jerseys. And I always have like two or three sponsors. Our practice kits are sponsored, but it, we don't see any of the savings there. But that's for another, that's for another day. So it's, to your understanding, because I love getting into the details on this, they are raising money through sponsorship. They're generating revenue through a club facility, a club operations. They're probably receiving some donations. They're receiving some money from um, 
the the parents at least 150 and subs or whatever and they could and i'm gonna go to a limb here they could rent out their facility at times anything they can do to rent if they have their own fields do you think they ever rent out their facility to raise they, money they won't no? rent out their fields um they, they might sometimes do activities in their clubhouse um but in a lot of cases those activities are set up by a committee from the club itself to generate more revenue so if we were in if we're talking about today not comparing it to the past uh -huh. do you think their the quality of their fields is it going to be turf fields nice grass fields what are we talking about how big is our local clubs facilities in general um so it, it's 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 probably a mix of of both right there's going to be some turf fields there are going to be some grass fields um I, I I would have to take a quick Google search and see what my last amateur club currently has. Um, because I haven't been there for a while, but like let's see if I can go to the Google Maps and take a look at it. And you look um, at that. Let me throw this at you. You look at that, let me throw this at you because I love getting into the detail. A local club, if you looked at the number of kids that were going to participate, if you had to give a guess, what are we talking about on average? So you know how in the States, it's not uncommon for clubs to have over 1,000 participants. Yeah, that's the same in the Netherlands, depending on the area the club is, the area that the teams are. Um, like my last club was at a at a smaller village. Um, they had five fields two of those fields were used mainly for practice three of them were game fields um yeah anywhere from 500 till a thousand members is is normal if you think about the fact that it's both youth and adults okay youth and adults now moving along now in terms of the in terms of the governing body it's everybody all of these clubs are registered with the fa and so they're all registered under the KNVB. What's that? Do you know? Remember what that stands for? Yeah, it's um, if I if you're okay with it, I will say it in Dutch: Koninklijke <laughs> Nederlandse Voetbalbond. So basically, the, the the national soccer affiliation. And the reason I'm saying that, and thank you for that, is do are are these clubs? Do they have any type of carding system like they have in the states, where you know we have for lack of a better term, agents who also can issue cards. So the U.S. soccer can have a card. U.S. club soccer can have cards. AYSSO, do you have anything like that? Yeah, so when I played, every player had a player card that was assigned to you and that was held by your team manager and needed to be shown uh, at, any, at any game. The difference is like, there's a mon monopoly, right? Because we only have one, like most countries besides the U.S., only one governing body for for the sport. So, so that's what I'm getting at. You don't have the equivalent of U.S. club soccer and AYSO, and you can be on the you can be registered with U.S. soccer and a and and then U.S. club soccer, and you can play on this team, and the other team don't know. You don't really have that. Everybody's player card is coming from your single governing body, right? Yes. Then how does that translate to the leagues for the youth level? Let's start, just keep it on the youth level. So 
uh, yeah, how does that translate to the leagues? How do the leagues organize? So again, let me throw the states out here so we're on the same page. Uh, the various governing bodies. So U.S. soccer is the governing body, USFM, you know this. But U.S. soccer, and then you jump in and correct me because I don't, you know, they have given U.S. club soccer, AYSO, and, and probably some other agents, the ability to also issue cards that are recognized as official. And those organizations can create leagues. So the ECNL, MPL, those regional leagues, they create leagues. U.S. soccer has leagues. Uh, National League, N64, National League Pro, and then and then all of the state leagues that the each of the of the state bodies under U.S. soccer create. And they have these names. I can't even remember North Carolina's names, but North Carolina, they may have a state league called the, the North Carolina Premier League or whatever. And they have like three or four divisions or something like that. I'm saying all that to say that if you moved here and you were really interested in this and you said to me, I want to sign my son up for or my daughter up for soccer, what to, what should I expect? Well, if they play rec, I'm going to tell them they're going to play in what we call a house league, just intramural. They're going to play against other teams within the same club. And then I would say if they move up a little bit, if they play challenge, they're still going to play in a house league, but they could do tournaments. They might do a tournament against a team in another club. But then once they go to competitive, if you're really interested in it, then I would need to know who is your, how did they card them? Because if they card them with U.S. soccer, they'd be in a U.S. soccer league. If they card them with U.S. club, they would be in some U.S. club league. Now that I said all of that, what are you going to tell me about the leagues? How do the leagues work in the Netherlands to your memory? So there's not much. So the, the big difference is like one body versus eight or nine bodies here, right? So everything is promotion relegation in the Netherlands. So at the beginning of each year, as a club, you let the KNVB know how many teams you have at what age group. And they then basically get placed based on last year's standings. So if you were first or second, you get promoted. If you were like, let's say there's 10 teams in your league, you were nine or 10, you get relegated. So to kind of explain it from the top to the bottom, it's basically nothing more than a pyramid where you got your youth pro clubs, what is the, it's the smallest point of the pie, and that basically starts weaning out to a bottom where in the bottom you basically have your local leagues where equal-minded teams, equal-level teams in a certain surrounding play each other. So the higher you get on the pyramid, the further the travel becomes, um, the harder it is to stay there. So... Let me ask you this. The higher you go up on the pyramid, do you pay any more money or not? No. 
do you think the higher you go, you would get more training? Yes. So then if you if I came to you and said, oh, man, I really want my child to get the best training and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm American, so I want all this. Are you going to tell me to be selective on which club I join? Yeah, absolutely. Like if if just just like here, right? Like there, it's nothing different. Like if I would pick up my suitcases right now with my son and leave Wisconsin and let's say move to California, it becomes my responsibility basically to do research and see what the best fit would be for my son, right? In the Netherlands, or my daughter, in the Netherlands, it's, it's basically the same. I move into a certain area, and depending on experience of your player, you start looking at what's surrounding me. Like, what clubs are there? Which clubs are available? Where do those clubs play? Um, and then you just register your, you sign up with that specific club and they will then place your child on a specific team. Now, if you have established yourself a little bit as a player, it's, it's going to help, of course. Right. And that's here too. Like if I would pack up my suitcases and move tomorrow to California, I would ask some of my son's previous coaches if they have any connections and I would like do some research and say, Hey, this is, these clubs are probably good fits from, from my child. Here you would go to tryouts and you probably do two or three. And then Alan, she often don't do that. There are no tryouts. So you go online and you say, okay, if we're moving from, let's say, the south part of the Netherlands to the northeast and we're moving to a specific area, you start looking at like, okay, which amateur clubs play at what level with their youth teams? And then you basically go to that club and say, hey, I, we're, we're, we just moved here. Um, my son played at this level down south in, in this club um i think he would be a good fit for your top team could we train a couple of times before we make a final decision and then if both parties feel it's comfortable and good you basically sign up with that club to play for that club for for the next year okay so we know that we have the scouts how do the academy the, the academies that i'm defining and then you can tell me how you define it if it's not if it's different those are the youth programs associated with the professional clubs. Correct. So I'm going to ask a couple couple questions, and then I'm going to give it to you. Number one, are there are there is there any understanding of there being an academy that's not associated with a professional club? So, in other words, you know, in the states, people will throw that name out there sometimes, and it doesn't mean the same thing. Or is it universally understood in the Netherlands as this is academy and this is not? And then, you know, in the States, how we, in the States, we think about soccer in terms of it being recreational and club and challenge. Do the, culturally do that, is that how people think about it there or is that just a foreign concept? So in other words, in the UK where I used to live, this is a huge generalization, okay? But basically they think of it as grassroots or academy. 
there's layers to grassroots and there's different levels of grassroots. But for the most part, you either playing grassroots or academy. There's not all of these. I'm in NPL. I'm in chat. No, you grassroots or academy. So now that I said that, if I had to say ask it succinctly, how does the academy system work? When does it start? What's the differences? Whatever you got to say about the academies. So I think academy is just a fancy word, right? Um, in, in the Netherlands, you either play at an amateur club or you play for a pro club. There's nothing else there. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't play each other because they do. Like, especially at the younger ages, a, a second team of a pro club has to go through the same line pipeline as the amateur clubs. So at some point in that pyramid where you have the pro clubs way up top with their first teams, that second and third tier is often where like the second pro clubs and like the top amateur clubs will play each other and are mixed in. Um, especially the pro clubs that play at the second tier a lot of their first teams still play against top teams from amateur clubs in the youth level. So I don't know of necessarily the Netherlands has academies. The word probably is being used by now for things. But if, and maybe this is just old fashioned, I just see it as like you got the amateur clubs and you got your pro clubs. If you're playing on a youth program in the pro club, you're in an academy to move up into the pro world. If you're playing at an amateur club, you're just playing U18, U17, U16, U15, U14, all the way down. Now, they might call their first teams in a certain age group an academy team because that's their top team. Just like here, a lot of clubs do that with their first team. Where 20 years ago, when I came here, the word academy didn't exist, and it was just a color, right? Like, if your club was red, white, and white with black shorts, your teams were red, white, and black. I, I but just hold think on, though. Let me, but let me, let me throw one thing at you. So, when I think of academies in, the, in Europe, not necessarily in the States per se, but a little bit in the States, too, they're signing pro. They're signing contracts, though. Yeah, but so contracts you can't contracts you can't sign till the age of sixteen. Um, before that, any like fifteen and under, any kid that plays for a pro organization is just a soccer player. They don't get paid. They they're they're being taken care of, but they don't get anything. They don't sign anything. Like they get often recruited. And they play, and if they do well and there's development, they often are allowed to stay. But if there's no development, they get let go and often go back to their old amateur club where they played before. So, so but if I had to compare the training environment, I mean, if you had to compare the training environment to a, a professional youth uh a youth program that's attached to a pro club, and we'll we'll say they're youth academy for the purposes of this. Compared to the amateur, is it, am I going to see a stark difference? Oh yeah, 
like a, a pro club, they train four days a week. And then in, when there's breaks, school breaks, they often train twice a day. You don't see that at the amateur clubs. Um, I think to talk. Let me unpack that, that though. Don't 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 gloss over that. I want to unpack that. So you're saying, at what age would they start? Do you think, roughly speaking, they would go to four days a week and even two days, two days in the winter? At the at at the at the pro youth programs. Yes. U eleven, U twelve. And you won't see that at the amateur. So they U eleven, U twelve. It's not uncommon to do four days a week, and then periods where you train twice a week. Correct. Okay, so continue, but and then in terms of the training environment, what will I see differently? Will it just be like more organized, more intense, or what will it? Or what everything, it, everything is at a higher level, right? Like it, it's it's a professional organization, so a U team will have a at the pro level will have a, a head coach, they will have an assistant coach, they will have a goalie coach, they will have an assigned like therapist that will help if there's aches or pains um they have an assigned like assistant that takes care of everything around the team um if there are needs for it they have what they call special specialty trainers uh that work with specific groups of kids like i'm a specialist in defense or i'm a specialist in the offense so they will pull kids out of their normal environment and work specifically with that individual. Um, and that often happens during those weeks where they have no school, where they train twice a week, uh, twice a day, where they have one group training and one training where they work specifically individually with a specialist. And often those are old pro players. Okay. So now let's pivot a little bit to the football. Um. How would you describe the national soccer identity of the Netherlands if you had to? Like, if someone said to you, what is their identity? How do they want to play? How do they see the game? Would you say that there is none? Or would you say, well, this is kind of how it works? Or you say that's too complicated or it varies? How would you answer that question? I, 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 can, I guess I can go old school and everybody knows this, right? Like, where the the, the country of the ticky tacky soccer, the modern era of soccer with like a, a coach as Johan Cruyff, players as Ruth Gullet, Marco van Basten. Um, even though we have never won a World Cup, uh, a, a lot of countries, a lot of coaches all around the world look at the Netherlands as, as a trendsetter in a lot of things. Now, is that still the case now? No. Um, I, I think... If you look to our national team, we're definitely a 4-3-3 team uh, for a long, long time. Um, but with the current generation we have, more different for formations have been played. Um, but you will see Dutch coaches all over the world because of how they have been educated, um, how they think about the game. And I, I think there's a lot of respect over the world for Dutch soccer. So when you when you when we translate that to your experience of youth soccer in the state, 
and you've been here over almost 20 years, right? Uh, yeah, 22. So when you got here, oh, give us some context on how much you played and what you did before you came. So that, and then I'm going to ask you basically what your impressions were when you first arrived, going back <laughs> in the time time capsule. So what did you do in the Netherlands in terms of soccer before you came here? Okay, so my last couple of years before I came to the United States, I would train with our club team, our outdoor team, uh, three times a week. We had our game on Sunday, and then on Friday nights, I played for a futsal team um, that basically traveled through the whole country uh, in one of the highest leagues for futsal. So I was basically five days a week, busy myself um and then on top of that i coached a youth team so before my own trainings i trained them and then i coached them on saturday so mondays was my only day off of no soccer so then what brought you to the states so i went through a personal rough time with a divorce and felt like i was living in a bubble so I at one day was sitting behind the computer browsing around and run into an organization that did summer camps in the United States. So reached out to them, um, got the invite to come to their location and did a couple of training sessions with them. And then in the summer of 2001, I went for three weeks to the US, two weeks in New Jersey and one week in Connecticut. Uh, to run summer camps for this organization. And uh, the last club basically enjoyed it so much that they basically asked if I had interest in coming back. So they set up an agreement with this Dutch organization and I signed with them for nine months. I left my day job and packed everything up. And in September of 2001, I flew back to New York to go to Connecticut coached a U13 and U14 girls team there for that fall. So that's how I yeah, came to the U.S. I would love to have seen your session. So, okay. Now, what were your initial... Now, we're going to... We go, we're going to... There's a couple of paradigms. There's a time paradigm, right? We're going back in time. And then there's a geography and just the maturity of the soccer in America. So, going back in time, what were your initial thoughts of so youth soccer then? like in terms of the players compared to the players in the Netherlands. And I want you to do this. Don't compare them to the academy players yet. Compare them to the local kids. Yeah, so so it was my first experience coaching girls teams. Um, because I had the U13, U14 girls. Um, in the Netherlands at that time, girls soccer was barely existing. The couple that played played for boys teams. So it, it was an interesting, an interesting experience. Um, completely different than I was used to back home, where I had coached a couple of boys teams. Um, the boys teams only had fourteen players on their roster because in the Netherlands at that time, you only could sub three players during a game. So often we brought our fourteen players plus like one or two players of either a second team or a younger age for their for the experience. So I suddenly got to deal with like 
16 till 18 girls on one team. Um, unlimited subbing. Uh, let's see what else did happen that fall. Oh, a silent weekend. I was not able to, I was able to be there, but I couldn't coach my players. Um, if I said something, I would get a verbal warning. And if I would do it again, I would be sent off and the game would be disbanded. So, so that's one of those silent weekends. And they did those even that long ago? Yeah. And in Richfield, Connecticut, they did that in the fall of 2001. Wow. Because we're going to get to the parent piece in a second because I know we're running. But let me. But I, and I know it was I know there's a gender piece, which actually is very good. I'm glad you brought that up. Because I think that helps us get some context on terms of the U.S. soccer and how people are now saying the rest of the world is catching up and stuff. And I think that's going to be inevitable as more and more women, rightly so, take their positions in U.S. So in global soccer. But but the soccer in general, though, you know, like I lived in England, for example, and if someone were to if if someone were to ask me about basketball. I could easily say it's just not the same. It's not the level because these people, well, I grew up in North Carolina. It's, it's a religion that in football. Uh, so we, they were good players in London that played basketball, but it just wasn't the same. I mean, how was it when you got to America? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm like, I, I, I think it was very, like, let's start technically where they, how technical were the kids compared to, I know you coach girls, but from what you saw from boys, how technical I, I think overall, I was surprised with what was going on at that club um, in a positive way. Um, it was hard to compare because I was coaching a U team that was, I would say, two-thirds up in that pyramid. So it was a very competitive team. Um, the boys I was coaching, they, they would have a soccer ball on their feet 24-7 back home because... You live and breathe that sport back home. And and here you, you were happy if you started practice with 14 out of your 18 players and two or three would roll in right at practice time or a couple minutes late. So um I I but at the same time I wanted to learn and understand the culture of soccer here in the United States. So I was not right away of bad of like, listen, if you can't come on time, then just don't show up. That 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 was just not me. So I tried to dive into in those first couple of weeks on, okay, why are people showing up late? Why are like I I had a I had a manager who basically was the previous coach of the team. And I basically asked him to run like the first week all practices and coach the game so I could observe and listen to like what was going on. Because like I just said, I didn't want to come in and say, this is how it's going to be. Otherwise there's the door. And basically get that attitude on from the parents like, oh, Here's that foreigner thinks he knows better, right? I think that fall, Harry Potter came out for the first time. I went with both teams to go watch Harry Potter. 
just to work on chemistry, on building something to make them understand that soccer is so much more than just showing up when you're supposed to be showing up, play your game and leave. Because that's what it is over here. Over here, every team is basically their own club, right? Because half of the time you don't know who the other players are in your club because parents bring their players to the field that they have practice or games and they pick them up right after and that's it. So what I tried to implement at that time was like, hey, let's our practice is from 5.30 till 6.45. Let's show up at 5 and do something fun as a group then train and then spend 15 minutes afterwards about talking what we did and what we can do moving forward. So my my first fall really was focused on, can I bring a different culture to this club in a positive way without overstepping my boundaries and doing things 180 degrees different? And I love that approach. As I was listening to you, I'm thinking I'm doing a training session this week uh, tonight, and I was thinking about I need to apply that because I do have a tendency because I have a format that I like to follow. Um, that I have a tendency of making the mistakes that you're pointing out, and so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be mindful of that. So we're wrap we're wrapping this up, but I really want to hammer in. Um, so. Like in general, now we fast forward. Now, if someone had to, if do, do you see any issues with soccer in the states that you have a perspective on having lived in the Netherlands? I noticed the pay to play that's one, right? So keep going. Um, what about the many, soccer piece? How many hours do you have? I know, right? I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, what about I, the I, soccer piece? On the soccer piece, I, I, I think for me personally, that my biggest pet peeve is that there's always somebody there that thinks they know it better soccer-wise and therefore feel like they have to create a new league. Oh. Why why can we not have a pyramid, and if, if you feel like U.S. club soccer is better than USSF or NPL is better than ECNL or however you want to call it, why can we not have every kid play against or with their friends at the level they belong to create the most competitive and fun environment at every level? The reason okay, so I say me, that. Let me, so let me ahead. jump in and say there's no, that we don't have league transparency. And therefore, it's really, really complicated, which then drives traveling and a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah. So one of the things you're saying is there seems to be either, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, there's an incentive to create more structures and more leads that lead to less transparency and just common sense competitiveness and competition, right? Yeah, like if I if I take Wisconsin, right? And I'm I'm gonna look at 
my, my son's age, who is a who is a U17. So in Wisconsin, we have two clubs that are connected to the MLS program. We have one club who is connected to ECNL. And then the rest is basically USSF. The four clubs, the four top clubs in, in Wisconsin will never play each other because they're all in different organizations. Therefore, the best Wisconsin players never get to play each other. And every club does something a little bit different than somebody else. We have, so Madison is about an hour and 15 minutes from Milwaukee, about two hours from Chicago. I can fill two school buses between boys and girls out of my area, the Madison area, that travel either to the Milwaukee area or to the Chicago area to play at a more competitive level because the local clubs do not want to grow or apply for other environments. Having everybody under one umbrella would decrease that. Like when I came to Madison 21 years ago, let's say, all the first teams of all the clubs in Wisconsin were playing in the in WISA, what is the Wisconsin Youth Soccer Association, against each other. Our travel time to games was no more than two hours. Last year, my son was a U16 playing USSF. We had, we probably, between November and the middle of June, we had four home games in Madison. Everything else was outside of the state of Wisconsin. And we barely touched the states next to us. Why? Because everybody thinks they have a better way to do it. Therefore, everything gets split up. And this starts on the top, working its way down. It starts, in my opinion, at the college coaches who don't have the budget anymore to go watch a whole bunch of tournaments all over and therefore choose the MLS because the youth players in the MLS are, in their opinion, the best players to look. Girls Academy on the girls' side and ECNL. I think those two are very even. On the boys' side, girls uh, MLS, ECNL, and the rest is under that. So you're forcing basically local kids to go find clubs that are either MLS, GA, or ECNL if they think they would like to play in college. If you yeah, don't do you that. Said, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you said ahead. something I want I want to accentuate, which is in a lot of you're also forcing local clubs uh for all practical purposes not to apply for those quote unquote elite programs because those elite programs bring in so much other rules, re, uh, restrictions, 
as well as they cause, and those clubs have to be accepted. So yep. it, it so instead of you developing your own players and moving up the pyramid based on what you're doing and knowing that there's a transparent league that you can play on, play in, irrespective of your club, for all practical purposes, you have to stay in your lane and say, this is what we can offer. So you take my son's club, my older son's club, he plays in what is commonly called a local competitive league. So U.S. club soccer allows you to create these leagues. Someone's created a local competitive league. Not MPL, not ECNL, and definitely not MLS or whatever. But I feel like he this is the best training environment for him and what he's doing. But parents now and players, to a lesser extent, are, are always go to the same crossroad of, man, I like, like the environment, I like the family, I like the coaches, I like what they're doing, but if I want to get exposure, I got to go do this, I got to go do that. And that traveling, to me, is very, very burdensome. Oh, yeah. All right. So now, league transparency is one issue. But what about on the grass, the coaching? The blocking and tackling. How do you? And I know it's going to be hard to compare to the Netherlands because you've been here for twenty years. But still, like when you start thinking about the coaching, is it better than you expected? The same? The education? What is your initial feelings in that regard? I don't want to couch this as the problem with us. I really want to try to understand the details. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's that much difference. I, I. I think every country has their ups and downs and the higher you play up, the better your coaching is and the lower you play down, the more you have to deal with um, volunteers, if you want to call it that way, either a parent or a non-parent who's willing to put in their time, right? Um, I, I think the main difference, again, is what I already said before, this, this just a general structure. Because a lot of countries just have one organization that feeds everything and oversees everything, there's an easier way as a parent or a volunteer to get support. Um, if, if you want to start coaching, you still have to go through the USSF or um, another program to get licensed. So, why not play under their umbrella? Um, I, I I think every country has their pros and cons. Overall, I think it all balances each other out on the pitch. Um, it just comes down to the U.S. is massive. And to get everybody in the U.S. on the same track is almost impossible yeah i agree with that and then and then culturally our um the way our uh country was founded was definitely anti-centralization in terms of government and stuff regardless of where you feel on the political spectrum so therefore um i think some of that seeps into how our soccer is organized now, right, we're going to wrap this up. So last last couple of questions. Parents, what are the, in your opinion, what are, 
in the Netherlands. How invested are parents into their child's youth soccer in the way that at least stereotypically in a generalization, generalization, our parents are invested in our children's youth sports? It's the same. There's not so, nothing different. All right. So that I find that answer surprising. So I'm going to cross-examine you. So you're telling like going to practice. So if I go to the Netherlands, am I going to see parents there watching the practices? Yeah. Okay. Out, go to from the from the from the clubhouse, drinking their coffee or drinking their beer. So they're not gonna have binoculars out there watching the kids feet. No, I'm joking, even though I have seen that. They're not watching it. So there is more in that case, you're saying it's more of a social piece, but they're there. Yeah. Like think think about it. If you go to a big facility here and that facility would have an enclosed area where parents for two bucks can have a cup of coffee or but three bucks can have a soda or, 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 or a glass of beer, right? I wouldn't be standing outside or sitting in my car. I would be in there drinking my cup of coffee and chit-chatting along with parents. What now I'm doing on the side of the field, either with open windows in the car, or if it's nice weather, we're standing outside leaning against our car. Yes. So what about um what about uh the uh do parents ever do, in your experience is it culturally normal for parents to ever work with their own kids like go out there and train them in the way that some parents here in the states do or is that a foreign concept? So are you looking at like when I was a child or currently because there's a massive difference. Yeah, so let's just go through the history because there's a massive difference in the states as well from when I was a child versus now. So from you, so let's talk about your childhood first and then let's fast forward to today. So in my childhood, I would be going to school, coming home, grabbing my soccer ball, and I would be outside playing with my friends, either in our little neighborhood or we would all grab our bike and go to next door neighborhoods and play boys over there. I was always busy with a ball. Nowadays, I think with the phones and the internet, all a lot of that has changed. Although I still think that both here and in Europe, if you're a soccer nut, you're outside playing with a ball. You don't care about the phone or the internet. So I in certain circumstances, I think that is still the same. I just think when I was a youth player over here, street soccer didn't exist. It was all, right. all organized. Okay, so, but if I had to put it in a bow, do here, parents are very eager to either work with their kid, which is going to be a small minority, or if they're in these competitive environments or train or have private trainers, they pay private trainers. Where when I lived in England, that was not really a thing. Parents didn't No, because you didn't you didn't need you didn't A, you didn't need to because the kids were playing against each other, right? And B, when you lived there and I was back there, a private trainer didn't exist. It is it, it's it's such an American culture to have these private stuff. It is integrated now more and more where you see those 
academy program starting just like you have here, individual people that start an academy program to enhance your son or daughter skills, right? It, it's a it's a business. Um, but yeah, I think that is a massive difference. Like, but it's it's the opposite too. Like, if you take a different sport, when you think about basketball, twenty years ago, everybody was on the street here as a kid or as an adult playing basketball in, in your neighborhoods. You didn't see that in Europe. So if you were a basketball player, what did you do? You had to find somebody that was willing to work with you. Okay. All right. So this is the last thing. I'm going to share my screen, and we're going to wrap this up here. Man, this has been a long one, but I've enjoyed it. I wanted to get into the details. All right. Are you familiar with this article by The Guardian? It's very famous. It kind of talks about... Uh, this particular, I think he was actually British, the author of it. He went to he went to and witnessed a Dutch academy. They probably were doing Corover soccer moves. Probably. Basically. One kid with the ball, uh, getting all these touches in, somewhat in unison, getting a loads of loads of touches, unopposed, you know, toe touches here, Cruyff turns, drag backs. Just da 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 da, and and for a lot of Americans who follow um, soccer and a lot of parents, this article and coaches as well. Um, this article had was very influential to us. Now I don't want to get into the debate of the ten thousand hours. That's not the point. The point is loads of touches, uh, unopposed touches, ball manipulation at those younger ages. The in isolation may not appear to be game-like, but you're basically building, training the brain, muscle memory, neuroplasticity, all that kind of stuff that then leads to a degree of fluidity when you do apply it. Are you familiar with this article? If not, what are your initial thoughts and how, how do you translate that to real life, what I might see in the Netherlands? Um, not I'm, not I'm not familiar, but again, it comes back down to... Street, the, the street soccer, right? If if you have, if you watch any interview with current pro professional players, Dutch players, they all say the same. I learned my skills on the street because I got so many more touches. It was so much more like realistic. I had fun without knowing I was under pressure. Um, at my current club, we're going back to that. Like when I moved in this area, the club that I am with now, they were decent in their touches. In this past year, I've seen basically all the girls' teams within that club and worked with them and like, touches are not there. Because nowadays, the, the, the youth nowadays doing simple things like toe touches, it's too boring for them in their minds because why would I want to do that if I can, while well, I can play like a super fast, high and excited computer game on my Xbox or on my phone? So over the over the last couple of weeks, I have I've started introducing anytime soccer to my uh, seventh, eighth grade girls team, and I was surprised how well they took it and how interested they are in there, um, based on. 
the way I explained it to them, like what it's going to do for them. So now we'll see how it is over a longer period, but everything starts and breaks, in my opinion, with the individual food skills. Yeah, and the challenge is, I call this in my podcast, and we're going to wrap this up, and I appreciate the kind words. These are delayed gratification activities. You have instant gratification activities, delayed gratification activities. The whole point of doing delayed gratification activities is so that they have a longer-lasting fun, a longer-lasting fulfillment, a longer-lasting sense of accomplishment. You know that. And so now the challenge is, because we're in an instant gratification society to some extent, the challenge is... Uh, of meeting the kids where they're at with these delayed gratification activities in a way that doesn't overwhelm them. So that's why our videos are really short, but at the same time, there's no way around it. you got to get these touches. And I always preach to people saying, if we were in Holland, you know, in the 1970s, there would be no need for any time. <laughs> but we are where we are. You know what I'm saying? We are where we are. So we got to, we got to meet our people where we at, man. Hey, this has been a long one, but I really wanted to pick your brain on this. After these interviews, I know we all so tired. You're probably going to take a nap. I'm tired. you tired. But it's really good to get this on film. It'll be great for your son, but also to help us understand at the, at the detail level what youth soccer is like in those countries. I just sat down with Coach Danny Von Mole, Wisconsin, Oregon Soccer Club, not Oregon on the West Coast, but Oregon, Wisconsin. And we just had a delightful conversation about the soccer pathways that would be available to your child if you lived in the Netherlands. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm the founder of Anytime Soccer Training and also the host of the Inside Scoop podcast. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. Have a great one and we'll talk soon. All right.